Amen. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We, um, <clears throat> we have an identity crisis in our country. And as you can see, um, it's affecting all kinds of um, people and animals and everything else. But um, if we were to get into the head of a cow, and the cow was saying, I'm not a cow, I'm a cat, we immediately uh, began to say, well, let's just think about the features of a cow and the features of a cat, and let's just see if what you think you are fits with the reality. And obviously, we probably aren't going to reassign uh, reality to our animals, um, but there's a lot of reassigning going on among people in terms of what they're saying they are. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like for us to look at 1 Corinthians 6 and think about how is Paul, in addressing some practical matters, He's talking about the issue of lawsuits between believers. He's talking about the issue of sex outside of marriage. But he's arguing on the basis of what people think about themselves, think about reality, think about themselves in relationship to God. And so it's very much a kind of identity argument with regard to both of these issues. And obviously, both issues can be dealt with and are dealt with in other places in different ways. But Paul is actually arguing that what they should do is firmly rooted in who they are and what they are. And so that's why I want us to think about the reality that identity matters, or at least what our identity is and what we think it is. Uh, lawsuits between believers should be in-house and rare, and we'll qualify that as we need to. Sex or physical intimacy is not simply functional, physical, and personal. The gospel transforms and truth matters. So I want us to think about this, and hopefully, as we go through this, I'd like to encourage you to think in terms of how does this address my own heart and life? How does this address my family and those that are close to me? How does this address the world that I live in, my country, the larger world, and the things that we are going through? Uh, what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians is he's, he's writing a church in the Greek city of Corinth, and he's writing based on things he's heard about the church and what's going on in the church. And in chapter 7, he'll begin answering specific questions that the church has raised and asked him to answer. But right now in chapter 6, he's still dealing with the reports that he's getting from the church in Corinth from believers who have talk to him about what's going on in the church, and he is addressing those reports. And so that's why he's talking about what he's talking about in chapter 6. So let me read for us uh, this chapter, and then we'll look at it uh, as much as we can with the time that we have. In verse 1, the Word of God says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? 
how much more matters of this life? So, if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. All right. So the last thing Paul says in this discussion is glorify God in your body. And uh, many of us are aware of the uh, catechism that starts off by asking, what is the chief end of man? And it says the chief end of man is that we glorify and enjoy God. And the question is, how do we do that? The Bible talks in all kinds of ways about what that's supposed to look like, but Paul kind of boils it down for us in Galatians when he says that what really matters is faith working through love. So that um, it's helpful for me, we even have this above our uh, vanity in our bathroom, trust and love. That God created all of us to glorify and enjoy him through trust and love. To glorify God means that we reflect his character. To enjoy God means I rejoice in his love for me. Um, And God calls me to reflect his character and to rejoice in his love, and that requires that I trust in the ways he's called me to trust and I love in the way he's called me to love. The two aspects to the trust part, 
Part of it is resting in what Jesus has done for me. And part of it is hoping in all that God promises me in light of what he's done. So it's an issue of both uh, resting in Jesus and hoping in God. And love is also kind of two parts in that it calls me to submit to God's written word. And it also calls me to submit to his sovereign will. And that's what we've sung about when we sing about the desert place or the desert place. We're talking about submitting to God's sovereign will. And so in order to love God and love others, I have to do both. I have to be submitted to God's word and to his sovereign will. And so all of that is a, is a part of the picture that we have in scripture, the big picture of I'm to glorify God. I'm, I'm to reflect his character and rejoice in his love through a trust that rests in Jesus and hopes in God and through a love that submits to his word and to his sovereign will. And so when Paul says what he says, he's speaking from that kind of worldview. He's speaking from a worldview that is very much God-centered. It's not man-centered. And it's very much an issue of what is my relationship to God? And, And because he's created me, and he calls me to trust him in certain ways and love in certain ways, how should that impact the issue of whether or not I take my brother to court or not? How should that impact uh, what I do on the Internet and the temptations I face in this world? What, what should be my response in light of that world view? And so it's very important to realize that fundamentally, Uh, God calls us to live our lives in light of the truth, the big truth as well as all the truth that flows from that. And so let me just touch on a few things in this passage. Obviously, we could spend a lot of time on it. It's it's a rich passage in a lot of different ways. But let me just highlight, first of all, that, again, what Paul is doing here, he, he appears to be arguing for obedience based on understanding things that are true about us and true about who we are and what we are. And so we need to think about that. Many of you, I say many of you, some of you may have seen um, a recent movie or at least seen something about a recent movie that came out, came out that is called What is a Woman? So it was a movie made by a man named Matt Walsh, and it was only show, shown on one venue, I don't think other venues would take it. So um, Matt Walsh is a conservative uh, who um, doesn't believe that there's more than one gender. And so he's calling into question the idea that um, there's all kinds of realities there and we just have to figure it out on our own. And so he's trying to uh, follow up on the question, what is a woman, and asking people about that. And he's kind of... uh, bothered by the fact that a lot of people don't even want to answer the question anymore. They don't want to define what a woman is. And so he's highlighting the problems there. And he, in one, uh, there are some just some segments on uh, YouTube that you can find where in one situation he's interviewing a therapist and she's talking about the fact that there are in schools today, there are kids that are going to school that identify as cats. And in responding to their teachers, they were, will purr or meow. And the teachers are required to affirm them in identifying themselves as cats. They cannot challenge that identification. 
Um, and obviously they're talking about the implications of that. He interviews in this um, movie a, a transgender woman, a biological male who identifies as a woman, but who also identifies as a wolf. And she calls herself a wolf-therian. A therian is someone who identifies as an animal. And um, so Matt Walsh, Walsh is interviewing her and asks the question, how and when did you discover your inner wolfness? And she said, around 10 or 11, I was watching this anime, and I saw this wolf going across the screen, and all of a sudden I thought, that's who I am. That's what I am. I'm a, a wolf. And so that's the world in which we live. We, we have children identifying as cats or as animals. We have adults identifying as animals or identifying as uh, another um, you know, men identifying as women, women identifying as men. It's even goes, gone so far as able-bodied people identifying as disabled people. And it's interesting, though, there are those who would affirm that a woman can identify as a man, but they would not agree with an able-bodied person identifying as a disabled-bodied person. So everybody's drawing lines in different places in terms of what's acceptable and what's not. And the reason we are where we are is, like we saw last week from Daniel chapter 8, uh, truth has been flung to the ground. And because truth has been flung to the ground, everything is free game. We just all can come up with our own ideas of what is real and what's not. And yet what Paul is saying here is it does matter uh, how you identify yourself, what you think about yourself, what you think is true about yourself, what you think you are, because it does translate into what you do. In verse 1, he calls us saints. The word saints means holy one or set apart for God. I, as a Christian, I'm to think about myself as being one set apart for God. I'm a saint, not that I'm perfect, but that I'm set apart for the glory and enjoyment of God. In verse 2, he says that we are judges. He says that, don't you know that we're going to judge the world? We're going to judge angels, which basically means, I think, he's highlighting, as he said before in Corinthians, we have the mind of Christ. We've been given the truth of Christ. Therefore, we can evaluate behavior. We can evaluate what people uh, say is right or wrong or true. In verse Eight, um, it says that we're family members. He highlights the fact that uh, we should care whether or not we're fulfilling our family obligations and treating one another as family, brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 11, he says that we're washed, sanctified, and justified, which means we're forgiven, we're loved, and we're accepted. And I, it matters whether or not I see myself and count myself and think of myself as forgiven, loved, and accepted. Identify as someone who is forgiven, loved, and accepted. In verse 15, he highlights the fact that we are members of Christ, which is a spiritual union. It talks about our union with Christ. We're not, we're not just what we see. We're beyond what we see. There's a spiritual reality. He says in verse 19, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the inner 
room, the holy of holies of the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling of God. It matters whether or not I see myself that way, whether or not I identify that way. And then he says in verse 20, we've been bought with a price. We are the purchased of God. We've been purchased. Uh, We do not belong to ourselves. And so all of that is identity talk in terms of uh, who we are or what we are. And and Paul is arguing that uh, we need to think about what we do and how we live in light of that. And ultimately, our identity, who we are and what we are, is connected to God. It's not connected to our sin. There are some people that want to identify as same-sex Christians or gay Christians, which is tied to what you do or you don't do. The Bible doesn't ever make those kind of categories. We're, we are what we are in relationship to God, not in, in relationship to what we do or to our sin struggles or issues or things like that. And so truth in terms of who we are in the sight of God is crucial. You have to think about the trans woman who identifies as a wolf. What does that translate into in terms of practice? How does that impact uh, that person's life? Well, according to one video, um, it means putting on ears and a tail and scampering through the forest on all fours. That's what it means. Uh, How you identify has implications for how you live your life. And so fundamentally, Paul is arguing that uh, one important set of truths that we need to apply when we're trying to fight sin or should be fighting sin is let's start with who God is and who we are and how that should translate into our lives. And so what Paul does is he addresses two things that he's heard about What's going on in the body in Corinth? One has to do with the issue of lawsuits. And um, he's highlighting the fact that even among in the church, we are prone to not treat each other very well. We're prone to take advantage of each other. We're, we're prone to conflict and disagreement. And um, many of you have probably heard the story. I, I think I've told it before about Usually it's in a Baptist context about the Baptist who's marooned on a desert island. And finally he gets, you know, he gets uh, rescued after five years or so. And as they pick him up, they notice there are three huts on this uh, island. And they ask him, so, you know, I thought you lived by yourself. I didn't think there was anybody else on the island. He said, oh, yes, I've lived by myself for five years. And they say, so what are the three huts for? He said, well, one hut is my house. One hut is... uh, the church I go to. And they say, well, what's the third hut? Oh, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) Because that is the way it works, right? Because we are prone to divide. We are prone to be in conflict. And that is what we find in the book of Corinthians. The Corinthians were at each other in all kinds of ways, and lawsuits was one of the ways in which they were Um, not loving each other. And so he begins to talk about how they should think about lawsuits. And he starts in verses 1 through 6 by basically saying, why are you taking your problems with each other before unbelievers? 
Now, let me just make a distinction here. I believe Paul isn't rejecting Romans 13 and the place for government. And he's not saying that there aren't things that ought to be addressed by the government. And there aren't things that happen in the church that the law doesn't need to know about. You know, like in the SBC, there's this controversy right now over a report about abuse in the church. And part of the issue is not reporting things to authorities. So I don't believe Paul is saying we should not report criminal activity, which abuse is criminal activity. He's not saying we shouldn't report that to the authorities and address that. But he is talking more along the lines of civil issues, uh, property issues and other issues, not criminal issues. And he's saying, isn't there someone among you that's wise enough to help mediate or arbitrate or or do something to keep it in-house? Don't you think that if we've been given the mind of Christ that uh, you ought to be able to handle that in-house? And so that is really what he's arguing. He's arguing that between believers there are many things like that that can be handled within the church uh, through um, the wisdom and grace God's given us through his word and through wise people in the fellowship. And that's why you have ministries like Peacemaker Ministries and other ministries that try to help churches uh, do those sorts of things. And so, but he's also going on to say that just the issue of lawsuits themselves are an, are an issue. Because he says in verse 7, actually then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. So he's beginning to highlight the fact that one issue is you go to unbelievers to settle issues. The other issue is that you have lawsuits anyway. Now, I don't believe he's saying that there should never be any kind of uh, conflict resolution. I think what he's highlighting is he's highlighting the fact, as he goes on to say, uh, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? He's highlighting the fact that we can have a, a spirit, and this spirit I think was in the church in Corinth, Corinth was, you know, I want my rights, and I don't want to lose anything. And so I'm going to protect my rights, I'm going to protect my property, I'm going to protect everything that's mine. When Jesus said, you know, if they they take your coat, give them your shirt, in certain situations, you just say, you know what, for the glory of God and for the progress of the gospel and for the good of the, the body, I'm going to suffer some loss. I'm going to experience some wrong and not always demand my rights. And we can see that in the the ministry of Paul. Sometimes he stood up for his rights and sometimes he didn't, depending on how it would play out for the glory of God and the progress of the gospel and for the church. And so lawsuits between believers should be in-house in terms of what we've talked about and an exception rather than the rule as much as possible. There's a lot more that can be said about that, but we have to at least think about how Paul is encouraging us to be careful with how we handle our issues uh, before unbelievers and whether or not uh, our hearts are right toward each other in those regards. Well, let me go on and highlight what he says in verses 12 through 20. He's talking about the issue of sex or physical intimacy and that um, he's basically arguing, he says a lot in here, but he's arguing that we have to be careful of thinking about his, thinking about this as simply functional, physical, and personal. And there was a song, for those of us who are a little older, um, there was a song back in 1984 that ended up being a really popular song among a lot of people, 
and it was entitled, What's Love Got to Do With It? And the song, if you look at the lyrics, is basically arguing that um, physical intimacy is simply simply that. It's physical. It's just, there's nothing more to it. Now, the person who's singing the song um, was in an abusive relationship, she would say, and she talks about the fact that um, love is a kind of second-hand emotion, uh, who needs a heart when a heart can be broken, and all that sort of thing. And so part of the impetus for just making it purely physical is some sort of trying to insulate oneself from hurt. Um, but the reality is, Paul says, it's not just functional and physical and personal. Uh, there's a lot more to it. Um, and he highlights what... Um, we need to think about in this regard. First of all, he says that uh, sexual immorality, and when we talk about immorality, sometimes translated fornication, uh, that's sex outside of marriage, sexual activity outside of marriage. And the first of all, in verses 12 through 14, he says uh, that it contradicts the purpose of the body. Now, he starts out in verse 12, and it says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. There were no uh, quotation marks in the Greek text, but most interpreters, as they read that, believe that Paul is quoting um, a slogan from the Corinthians and then qualifying it or correcting it. So, all things are lawful for me sounds like a slogan. I can do what I want. I can live like I want. I can uh, have relationships outside of marriage. Um, and it's all tied to the, the idea that we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. We're not under the old law. We're under the, the new covenant, all those kinds of things. And they're true. But those things do not add up to I can do whatever I want. And that's the way that they added up for the Corinthians is, if this is true and this is true, then that means I can just do whatever I want. And then you've got the philosophy that basically separated the spirit and soul from the body, which meant, you know, the body really doesn't have an impact on me spiritually, so it doesn't matter what I do. And so you've got all these things uh, factoring into it where they're taking some things that are true and twisting them, they're taking some Greek philosophy and using that to uh, shape how they think about what's going on, and Paul is having to correct their thinking. And so he says, to whatever degree that might be true, uh, what your slogan is saying, to whatever truth it might be pointing to, uh, there still is the issue of whether or not what you're doing is profitable for you spiritually. There's still the issue of whether or not what you're doing is mastering you, ruling you. That, you, that we have to answer. And so in making decisions, we have the question, is it right or wrong, based on the, what the Bible says? But we also are to ask the question, is it profitable or unprofitable for me spiritually? And then thirdly, is what, am I, what I'm doing mastering me? Am I ruling it or is it ruling me? Those are all very practical questions that Paul is raising. And so he says, basically in verse 13, He says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. That appears to be another slogan. You know, uh, we just use our body parts for what they were designed to do. 
And it doesn't matter what the context is. It doesn't matter who's involved or anything. And Paul says, that's not right. It does matter the context. It does matter whether or not it's in marriage or not. Um, Because ultimately, the body is for the Lord, not for immorality, which means God has designed our bodies for certain functions, but those functions are to take place in certain contexts. And so even eating, there are limitations on that, right? Even the Bible talks about um, there's the sin of eating to excess and eating inappropriately, just like there is with regard to sexual activity. Eating is a good thing. I'm from the South. You you don't do anything without eating there. And so it's a part of fellowship. Um, But anything can be perverted. Anything can be taken too far. And that's what Paul is saying. Uh, You have to be careful of how you argue uh, to justify certain things. And so um, not only do we have to keep in mind what is the function, but we also need to think about what is the purpose. What is the purpose of this function? This function is to the glory of God. This function is to enhance marriage and to cause a husband and wife to become united in a very special way. That's the purpose of it. And therefore, we're not to deny the purpose or disregard the purpose of what God has done. In verses 15 through 17, he highlights the fact that it's not just a physical activity, it's a spiritual activity. And that's why when it talks in Genesis about the two shall become one flesh, it is talking about a physical reality, but it's also talking about a spiritual reality. And that's why divorce is so terrible and so heartrending. It's because it's not uh, just a physical union that is being disrupted. And so he says in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying your physical members are a part of Christ. He's saying that is the truth. That is reality. That your body, my body, as Christians, we are united to the body of Christ. That's a spiritual union, obviously, that he's talking about. And so he says, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So he's arguing that we're not to pursue sex outside of marriage, outside of the boundaries that God has set up because of who we are, because of what is true about us, that our bodies are part of Christ, which means that that what people do to me, they do to Christ. You can read Matthew 25. That's the argument in Matthew 25. If you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, Christ says you did it to me. If you fed them, if you visited them in prison, to do it to them is to do it to me. So that's a very spiritual reality. That's the truth of the situation. But here Paul is saying something a little different in that he's saying what I do with my body, in some sense, I'm bringing Christ into it because I'm connected to Christ spiritually. And he says, God forbid that I would involve the holy Christ in such an unholy activity. And so he's arguing that truth matters, that 
that sex is a one flesh spiritual union, not just a physical union. And we need to keep that in mind. And then finally in verses 18 through 20, he highlights the fact that sexual immorality desecrates the temple, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 18, flee immorality, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Again, some people wonder if maybe um, the first part of that is a part of a slogan. The word other isn't in the Greek. It could be simply translated, every sin that a man commits is outside the body. Um, something that that might have been part of the argument for the Corinthians. And yet, as if whatever they do really wasn't going to matter. Again, it's the whole idea that what I do doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, when Paul says, the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, some have said, well, aren't there other sins that also affect the body? And yeah, there, there are other sins that affect the body. Um, obviously, suicide affects the body. Um, obviously, um, drugs and alcohol, drunkenness, and all those things affect the body too. But he may be alluding to the fact that, as he says in Romans chapter 1, that there are certain special things that take place because of sexual sin. And we know about sexually transmitted diseases and things like that, and that very well could be part of what he has in mind. But one way or the other, he's highlighting the fact that your argument that this isn't hurting me and is it hurting anybody else is a lie. That's the point. However you understand that, he's saying... This doesn't hurt me, doesn't hurt anybody else, or we're just having innocent fun, is a lie from the pit of hell. And he's wanting us to think about that and realize that that's the truth. And he says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? The whole idea of my body, my choice, is a lie. Now, some people with regard to vaccines want to use it for saying why they're not going to take a vaccine. But even in that regard, all of us need to be submitted to whatever God says should be done with our body either way. That's the basic issue that Paul is highlighting here is that it's God's body. It's God's choice. It's not my body, my choice. And so, therefore, all of my decisions about what I do with my body aren't simply personal decisions. There are decisions to be made before God. There are decisions to be made in light of the word of God. And so, again, Paul is encouraging us to think about these things in terms of who God is and who we are in relationship to God. Uh, If we're going to uh, see things from his perspective. Well, the fourth thing that I just want to touch on is that Paul highlights the fact that there are um, ultimate issues being reflected here, both in terms of lawsuits and in terms of sex outside of marriage. Because in the very midst of this passage, verses 9 through 11, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, inherit the kingdom of God. 
Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, if you think about the the sins that he highlights, in verse 9, the sins relate to sex outside of marriage, outside the proper boundaries of marriage. In verse 10, they relate more closely to the issue of things and material things and materialism, being a thief or a swindler, uh, even being covetous, wanting what other people have. You could argue that he highlighted lifestyles. We're not talking about individual sins. He's not saying if you commit this individual sin, you'll never go to heaven. He's not saying that. He's talking about if you embrace as a lifestyle wholeheartedly these things, that this is, in some sense, how you identify and how you want to live. This is how you think um, life should be. And you embrace it in a favorable sense rather than fighting it, rather than seeing it as contrary to the word of God and wanting to be delivered from it, even though you still fall in various ways. If you embrace it as a lifestyle, if you identify with it in some sense, He says, those, even if they claim Christianity and claim Christ, will not enter heaven, will not go to heaven. So it's an issue of, I would argue, an issue of worship. Um, A great illustration of this is uh, Augustine. Um, He was, he's considered one of the great uh, church fathers, one of the great Christians, theologians, Uh, But before he became a Christian, he had a concubine for 15 years, had a son by that concubine. He himself acknowledged the fact that he was just completely in bondage to that lifestyle. And at some point, he was listening to a preacher named Ambrose and began to wrestle with that reality of his bondage to that. And finally, one day, he was in this garden, and these kids were playing nearby, and he hears a child I begin to say, uh, take it and read, take it and read. And it struck him as a word from God to go get the Bible and open it up and read whatever lays before him or, or was open to him. And so what happened is he went and got the Bible that his friend had. He opened it up to Romans 13, and there it said, Uh, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries, but rather arm yourselves for the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. So he read that portion from the book of Romans and immediately a light went on. And he saw his lifestyle and his sin from God's perspective and he was born again. And he began fighting that and having the power to fight it because he uh, had seen it from God's perspective and had received the forgiveness of God through Christ. And that's the only kind of sin we can overcome is a forgiven sin. And so he began to find freedom from that point on. But it took the truth being applied to his heart. And ultimately, if you read some of his writings, you recognize that it was really an issue of worship. Worship is whatever I look to for my help and my happiness, ultimately. Whatever I'm looking to for my ultimate help and my ultimate happiness, that is what I worship. And 
when I realize, when the truth comes home to my heart, that what I'm looking to, apart from God, will never help me in the way I need to be helped, and will never make me happy in the way that only God can, it's only when that truth comes home to my heart that I begin to worship God, as I should, and obviously through Christ. And so, when it says things like what we find in Matthew 7, uh, where Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit, and he talks about the fact that um, our fruit matters, that we, uh, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter heaven, but those who do the will of my Father. Now, why would anybody ever give their lives to doing the will of God? Because they worship God, because they're looking to God for the help they need, they're looking to God for the happiness that their heart longs for, that they have no reason not to live to do God's will if all of their hope is in God through Christ in in light of what he's done for us. And so you could argue that when Paul says in verse um, 9 that um, idolaters will not enter the kingdom of heaven, that in a sense he's highlighting the issue of worship in light of all of these sexual sins. And Romans 1 seems to confirm that. In in, uh, verse 10, he brings out the idea of being covetous and ties it to very practical things like stealing and swindling and those kinds of things. And you could argue that that, again, is a heart desire for more apart from God. And so the first commandment is there should be no other gods before me. The last commandment is to not covet what other people have. And so Paul could be very much arguing that, in a sense, the whole dynamic with regard to keeping the Ten Commandments is an issue of, does what I want lead me to worship God or something else? Is my heart prone to seek what I want in God or something else? If my heart, if what my heart wants is prone to worship something else other than God, then I will be, in one sense or another, following after murder and adultery and thieving and all those things. All of that will be the result of worship. And worship ultimately is rooted in what I want and where I believe that can be found. And that's why materialism is a worship disorder. You know, I want things because I think things will satisfy when only God can satisfy. Matthew 6 on worry is actually talking about the issue of worship. It says you can't worship God and mammon. So the issue of worry and wanting things is really an issue of what am I looking to to provide my needs? Am I looking to God or am I looking to my bank account? And there's all kinds of problems that come when we're looking to our bank account. Um, And then sexual sin is a worship disorder as well. As I said in Romans 1, Paul highlights that when he says we've exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the creator for the creature. And God gives us over to sexual immorality as a consequence. You know, a lot of people in our country are celebrating Pride Month this month. And what, what is that? It's... It's worship. It's a, it's a worship. That's why it's so passionate. That's why uh, it brings out such anger and opposition when people uh, try to say something different. It's because 
that's exactly what they're looking to for the satisfaction of their souls and for all that they hope for in this life. And if you touch that precious, it results in all kinds of um, angry responses. All right, well, I'm going to have to wrap this up. Um, The last point is just to highlight again what we've touched on in various ways this morning. Paul is arguing ultimately that truth matters. And what he does here is he, he says six different times in this chapter, do you not know? Don't you know the truth? You're acting in a way that implies that you don't know the truth. He says in verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16, do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? He asked 14 questions in these 20 verses. He's asking these questions. Uh, Don't you remember what I've taught you? Don't you know what the truth is? Are you living in light of the truth or not? And in the midst of it in verse 9, he says, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. No, realize that you're believing lies here. You're not living in accordance with the truth, and that's why you're embracing what you're embracing. And unfortunately, that's our, our natural disposition I've shared the story about the nomad in the desert who wakes up in the middle of the night and he's hungry and there's a bowl of dates beside his bed and he takes a date and he bites into it and finds a worm, throws it out of the tent, takes another one, bites into it, finds a worm, throws it out into the tent and then he blows out his candle and he eats all the dates. Why does he do that? Because he thinks, okay, if I find a worm in every date, I'm going to go hungry. And so I'll just turn a deaf ear to reality and I'll pursue what I want to pursue. That is what's happening in our country, and that's what happens to us naturally. We suppress the truth, and we pursue what we want to pursue. God says that we are not to be like that as his people. We are to fight with the truth. We are to realize that it's the truth that sets us free. Only lies enslave us, and we have to fight with the truth. And so I was talking to a friend this week who actually went through a very, very difficult situation uh, in a church that he was going to. Uh, He would say that he was falsely accused and that some things happened to him that were very hurtful for him and his family. He would say almost destroyed his family. But the interesting thing that stood out to me in that conversation was, he said, as a result of all that happened to me and my family, uh, truth matters a lot to me. Because from his perspective, what happened to him was on the basis of people believing lies. And they treated him in such a way because of the lies that they believed. So he's connecting wrong treatment of failure to love to what people believe to be the truth. And that's exactly what Paul is doing for us here. He's saying... You're not living rightly because you're believing lies. You're not loving each other. You're taking each other to court. You're having immoral relationships. And it's all based on 
believing lies. You're believing a narrative that is not true. Bow with me in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to uh, take a moment to think about what we've heard before we continue in worship, continue to honor you with the Lord's Supper. And so I just pray that you would help us to ask the question, who or what do we think we are? Who or what do we think we are? Help us also, Father, to ask the question, what's more important to us? Having our rights and getting our rights or glorifying you, honoring you, pleasing you with how we treat other people. Father, please help us to ask ourselves the question, when we're tempted in the area of sexual immorality, are we considering the spiritual dynamic going on there? Or are we even considering that you that you are being brought into an unholy situation, that we are dishonoring you and desecrating your temple. Is that reality even factoring into our fight? Father, help us ask the question, what are we trusting Christ for? And how is it shaping our lives? And finally, Father, help us ask the question, do we really believe that truth is important? And if we do, does it cause us to make your word important in our lives on a daily basis? Do we read it? Do we meditate on it? Do we pray over it? Are we really people of the word and people of the truth, especially in a world in which we're hearing lie after lie after lie. Then finally, the question is, um, have we ever entrusted ourselves to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and for the gift of eternal life and for the grace to even begin living like this? Father, just pray that you would speak to all of us where we are this morning that your word would be very personal for all of us and that you would meet us where we are, that you, grant, that you would grant us faith where we need faith, that you'd grant us love where we need love, that you would help us to see ourselves as we should and to see you as we should, help us to see our relationships as we should, help us to see sin as we should, and may the truth truly set us free. We thank you for your word. We love you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.